You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. I got a bad feeling about this. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! He's looking at you, kid. What we got here is a failure to communicate. You could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Uh, so, is this the first time each of you had seen this film? Yes. Yeah. And did you each watch it once, twice? I think, Brendan, you said you watched it a couple times? Yeah, I watched it once a couple weeks before, and then uh, once today, just to refresh myself and make sure I you know, knew more what I was talking about. Right. Well, I did not do that, because I'm not nearly as <laughs> thoughtful. I did see it last night, though, after almost forgetting to watch it, and then realizing, oh crap, I have to watch it right now. Um, but it is fresh in my mind, at least as a result. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. So I know this is sort of a broad, annoying question to ask, but, uh, well, Brendan, what would you think of it? Well, I thought it was interesting. One of the things, you know, Paul Schrader, he's most famous for writing Taxi Driver, and that's sort of a film that's considered to have, like, multiple auteurs. And this was kind of the same thing. You have Paul Schrader writing and directing, and then you have uh, Philip Glass, who's doing all the music, and then you have Mishima, who's writing the book. So you have, like, a lot of collaboration from a lot of distinct people coming in and playing off one another. So it's a lot of interesting effects from that. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, there are a lot of different visions had to come together to make this coherent. What do you think, Danny? Uh, the one thing that stood out to me was the inclusion of Mishima's novels in a stylistic fashion because i actually wrote a script myself that kind of did the same thing not about mishima just <laughs> I, I was just kind of oh they, they used my idea but before i was born <laughs> no you're absolutely right and that is the first thing that struck me i deliberately mm -hmm. went into this like completely blind i had no idea what it was about i had no idea if it was about a real guy um, but I was able to suss out pretty quickly what was going on, that it was based on a real man, and that they were doing that with the novels. And I remember thinking, yeah, boy, wow, that's a really cool structure for a film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it's interesting the way you know he designates it with the different uh, color schemes and the different sort of uh, set schemes as well for it, with the novels being like very theatrical and very colorful, and then his life being semicolor and his past being black and white. So I thought that was meant to be very symbolic throughout the, throughout the film. And and definitely necessary, even from like a screenwriting mm -hmm. standpoint, so you know what the heck's going on. Because without that, you know, you'd be pretty lost, you know. Um, but you always know what part of the film you're in. Yeah, mm -hmm. which is definitely necessary because he cuts through it pretty fluidly. But at the same time, yeah, at the same mm -hmm. time, he juxtapos juxtaposes the different realms pretty well, too. For the, for instance, the first time the guy stutters and, as a kid, and then he goes to the novel where he's a stuttering acolyte. Right, right. Well, and that actually makes me kind of wonder. I wish one of us were an expert on this man's life because, um, well, for the simple reason that if you take, if a guy's written all these novels and he has this long, varied life, as, as Mishima clearly did, it would be really easy to unfairly, to juxtapose them the way you say. Like, for example, if you wanted to tell a certain story about the way his novels are informed by his personal experiences, you could mine them for details like that and then put them side by side, and we'd all come to the conclusion, as I did watching this film, oh, he's putting a lot of himself into these books. Yeah. Maybe that's cherry-picking. You know, I don't know his work well enough to know if that's, like, conveniently edited. Right. 
I, I thought that the, the film had uh, varying degrees of cohesion and, and uh, dissonance between the novels and the film. You know, the first novel is sort of uh, ends in him gaining his maturity and overcoming his stammer by uh, like uh, sexual awakening. And then like very soon after Mishima says like, uh, because I became fit in my, my old age, that means like sex does nothing for me, basically. Yeah. 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 One of the things I mean, I mentioned earlier about the possibility of like cherry picking and for certain things, maybe the sexual awakening, the stammer, you know, things like that. It's a little hard to tell if it's cherry picked, but some of them, some of his novels are clearly autobiographical. You're like the one about a guy who forms a nationalist party and tries to overthrow (laughs) the government. I feel like maybe just maybe (laughs) that was sort of an indicator of what was going on in his head before he actually tried to do literally that. Yeah, they should have known. They should have they should have been able to predict that based on his novel. <laughs> I I know a lot of people don't love the idea that, you know, art influences people to do violent things, but in this case, in this case I want to say right. there was a connection between the two. And he makes it explicit, right? He says action is art in it in and of itself. The novel is limiting him and he's unsatisfied by it. Right, and that's sort of the conclusion of all three of the novels that that are shown as well as the conclusion of Mishima's uh, own life as it's portrayed in the movie is, you know, people building up to huge moments of, of like large catastrophic action for themselves. Yeah. And tied heavily into sex, which there's an interesting parallel there because it's kind of well known that sexual behavior out of any kind of sexual norm, uh, it ramps up. You, you need more and more for less and less, like any sort of addiction or obsession. It, you need mm-hmm. more varied things because you are unsatisfied by the old ones. And that kind of seems like that's what happens with his own art. You know, he dominates in the world of, 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 uh, of writing, basically. He's winning award after award after award, right. and the novel is suddenly limiting to him. He needs to go on to something uh, more hardcore, <laughs> and that is <laughs> literally making his life into a novel. Right, and uh, one of the one of the interesting things about the film is that it sort of elides right over his success. It's like he decided to write novels, and then boom, he has all of these awards, he's really famous, he's popular, and then he's like, on to the next thing, I need to work on my physical self. It happens really quickly in the film, which is interesting. Yeah, and that kind of makes me wonder, actually, whether or not it was easy for him. Like, did it come right. <laughs> They imply it is because he reels off how quickly he wrote all these things. Four months, five months, three months, ten months. And it's way faster than most modern novelists. And he's winning awards for them, too. So it's not like he's just cranking out cheap sci-fi novels every year or something like that. So the implication, whether it's true or not, is that, like, this just comes naturally to him. It's easy. It's not even a challenge. Yeah, yeah. I think the implication is definitely that he spent all of his childhood sort of working up to uh, hone his mental state. And that's sort of what allows him to be this great novelist with such fast talent, uh, we could call it. And and then after that, he sort of has to work hard to gain his to gain his physical skill. And that's his real his real challenge. Right. When the man in the gay bar calls him flabby, Mm -hmm. it's like, well, I'm this I'm this incredibly respected intellectual. And then you just kind of you make fun of me, basically, in some other Mm -hmm. area where I'm not dominant. And that that spurs him to become dominant in that area too. And he certainly he certainly corrected it. I mean, my first knowledge of uh, Yukio Mishima was uh, after learning the name of the film, googling his name, and seeing a bunch of pictures of him uh, with his shirt off and a sword. So, <laughs> so he definitely counteracted whatever self-image problems he had there. He's, yeah, he certainly fixed that. Yeah. And given that he lived in a much earlier time where, you know, homosexuality was not really talked about nearly as much, it's not surprising that a lot of the things he desired at the time were traditionally masculine. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't like being called flabby. His character talks about wanting muscles. He calls himself a coward for avoiding the military. It seems like this is something that probably followed him most of his life, especially the military thing, given how he ended his life. 
Yeah, well, I think there are a number of things that are specific to him being where he is. He obviously seems very influenced by um, by the World War and, he se- and his physical ailment as a kid. But if he was here today, yes, he probably he wouldn't be fighting any wars and he wouldn't be ill anymore. In terms of what you're talking about now, I, it reminded me of this other Japanese film, Pitfall, where um, you see Japanese society trying to rebuild itself and become basically a conglomerate after the war. And remember the same thing kind of happened in France at the end of the 1800s. And, and the same sort of masculinity was very apparent in their society as well. So I'm wondering if, if that is playing just as much of a role as anything else. But there's also there's also the aspect of, um, uh, like in the first novel, it ends with the guy destroying the uh, destroying the golden temple and that sort of seems uh, to me as a, like a, looking for rebirth for Japan he's trying to destroy the old beauty and you know build something new something that's like himself and beauty itself yeah. is actually talked about extensively not mm-hmm. only here but uh, it also reminds there's two other I call them artists that came to mind uh, that talk about beauty this much it's Oscar Wilde obviously and then maybe Jean mm-hmm. Cocteau a little bit and I remember Jean Cocteau is kind of in the same boat as Mishima. It's, beauty is sort of aberrant in a way because it's so overwhelming and destructive. And it's, I guess, destroying the temple is fighting fire with fire, but it kind of re- gives a rebirth, like you said. Well, I like what, uh, what Brendan said about using uh, the destruction of the pavilion as a, like a symbol for starting over because it's one of those symbols where if you literally just saw the silhouette, you'd know exactly what culture you were looking at. It's very emblematic. And plus, he, he wanted to do that when he was talking to the soldiers at the end of the film anyway. He wanted to spur on a new revolution. Right. It seems like he's very focused on uh, on starting a new rebirth. Both that happened in his life, and he tried to enforce it on the people of Japan. It's something he really sees as valuable. And what one of the things I find interesting is that, obviously, I'd never heard of this guy, and that speaks maybe to my own ignorance partially, but I feel like it also speaks to the fact that, you know, this has been swept under the rug a little bit. From what I understand, a lot of people don't really talk about it anymore. It's sort of an embarrassing, unfortunate thing that a great artist kind of fell apart like this. Yeah, it's still banned in Japan, I think. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and I, I get it. Like, you know, they, they celebrated this guy's work, and then he basically tries to throw a coup. But I think it also reflects the fact that Kind of, he kind of lost it. Like it's this wasn't a legitimate attempt to overthrow anything. It, it had no hope of happening, right? It wasn't like a little rebel band that just didn't fight hard enough, right? Like it was a very misguided thing with no hope of having any real impact, most likely. I think it's because uh, he became out of touch with everyone. Yeah, I mean, it's like what he's he's got a group of like a couple hundred people maybe following him. Like it's a very small little cult, basically. I know. I was like surprised that he got that far, even. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know how easily you could keep a secret army in Japan, but it didn't seem like a, a plausible thing to do. One thing you mentioned beauty earlier. It's very interesting that he conflates beauty with ethics, like they're the same thing. Like anything that's beautiful is therefore ethical, and that kind of explains how he tries to justify his actions at the end, I suppose. Because if you can do that, anything which you find beautiful, you can justify morally. Well, it actually reminded me of another Oscar Wilde thing where he said art is immoral. I mean, it does reflect the way some artists live live through their art at the expense of their life. In this case, literally, and in other cases, a little more uh, metaphorically. Uh, there's also that famous Stephen King quote that life isn't a support system for artists the other way around. Uh, Mishima, I think, fair to say, would not agree with that. Right. <laughs> right. But I think uh, the film sort of emphasized 
that somewhat I, I don't know if it was just you know, you know some impression that I got but I felt that the the se- sequences with Mishima as he's about to try and stage this coup uh, they got brighter and more and more colorful and more dense as the film went on as the art became his life and then we have uh, a really direct version of that when uh, when we see him flying the uh, flying as a fighter pilot with his I think that was uh, with his private army and you see him going up the plane and then it transitions briefly from black and white into color uh, it sort of it sort of you know fades into color and then goes away as as if the um, his past and and his art is becoming his life now I, I didn't pick up on that at all that's a great catch yeah because the yeah right his art is in color so they for him they sort of bleed into one another literally again right the whole the whole uh, all of the moments where he's uh, reflecting on his past is in black and white until that moment. And that moment, it goes from black and white and it transitions briefly into color. And But then that's very fleeting because it goes back to him at the coup when he's bleeding and desperate and he seems very crazy and his life's just about over at that point. Yeah, very interesting guy. Um, and there is uh, there are also other famous quotes about how there never was any genius without a touch of madness. Um, and again, that that might work here. I haven't read his novels. I assume they're very good if he's won as many <laughs> awards as he has. There's actually another novel that Schrader wanted to incorporate, uh, Forbidden Colors, which is an alternate title of the theme song of Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which is another <laughs> <laughs> Japanese movie about a gay yeah. relationship. I, I don't know if it, that's because of like his family didn't want that to be incorporated or something like that, but I know it wasn't end up in the film at all. I'm glad you mentioned his family because um, when I was watching the film, you know, once I gleaned that it was based on an actual man, you know, I took it for granted that uh, by the end at least he was openly gay or that this was a very well-established fact. But apparently his widow, who you would not know he ever got married from watching the film, uh, disputes that, um, and some people get very mad at the suggestion. She's mentioned once in the film. She is okay. mentioned once. And she was she was his wife like throughout his entire life, wasn't she? Yeah, but she yeah. was just mentioned like she took the kids to school. <laughs> <laughs> My point being, when watching the film, you figure this is just an unambiguous fact about him, and then when you read about it afterwards, you realize that Schrader is taking a point of view on a controversial topic. He's he's concluding that he was, and I guess he probably was from what I've read, but uh, I just I didn't realize that until afterwards. I think uh, Schrader had a lot to cover when he wanted to do this. He, he wanted to cover this guy's life biographically. He wanted to cover several of his novels, and he wanted to cover the incident. So he had a lot of things. So it might just be that some of these things got, you know, got thrown out because of uh, where he wanted to spend his money or where he wanted to spend his screen time. But it mm-hmm. did come off as a very, very specific sort of view of his life. If you try to be nuanced in a portrait of someone's life, it comes off as messy very easily. You kind of have to take some firm stands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fact that the end of the film was basically Japanese Fight Club <laughs> kind of lift, <laughs> leads into that a little bit. I didn't I didn't realize that until this morning. I thought, what is this reminding me of in some weird way? And I go, that's what it is. It's Fight Club. It's this self-destructive <laughs> group of young men. Well, seriously, right? They have a similar yeah. kind of ethos to it. Right. They're they're of different ideologies. But yeah, it's sort of a similar going for going for broken kind of crazy attempt at it, at taking over. That's an interesting way you put that too about ideologies because in cases like that the the nature of, of the movement is the ideology. There is an ideology that they say they believe in we want to restore, I don't know, honor or masculinity or, you know, the emperor of Japan or whatever. Yeah, Bushido. You know, usually young impressionable men who you know feel adrift somehow and this gives them structure and meaning. It's I mean there's the old cliche about 
troubled youths going into the military and finding themselves, right? It's a very common thing. And Mishima seemed to be offering, yeah, the, the not just the military, but a more traditional, a more, yeah, a more masculine. It's not like, it's not like these modern militaries, you, you need to be very physically fit. And, and I noticed when they were doing their coup, they didn't have like any guns with them or didn't use any guns. They were all had, all they had was daggers and swords. Yeah, that's Klingon level honor stuff right there, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 a big point of pride. Um, and and they have again, they have a superficial ideology. There's something about the emperor of Japan, but not the actual emperor. The emperor of Japan is like a stand-in for the spirit of their culture, and that just kind of the fact that it's so vague makes me think, yeah, that's the ideology itself. Sort of, it's sort of not the point. It's an excuse. Well, when he was giving that speech in in the theater, he was talking about reviving the samurai ideology, and I think so. Emperor ties into that. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it, I thought it was strange that he didn't include a fourth novel because it was segmented into four into four sections, and each one of them prior had a had a novel. So I thought the the lack of a novel in the last one was sort of meant to say the whole uh, art bleeding into life thing. But it's interesting that that's actually not what Schrader had intended. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense too. And I'd be remiss, by the way, if I didn't bring up the score, which is uh, very noticeable and very good. Um, kind of steals the show a little bit. I thought it was actually. Still yeah, early instead. on in Philip's career. Oh, it was one of the first things he did? He did uh, Koyana Skatsi, and then Schrader picked him up off of that, and then I guess this is what made Philip Glass big. My uh, favorite part was how the music actually swelled just as his name came up in the titles. I always like it when that happens. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that too. That was funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Philip Glass's score, I think, especially shows this sort of uh, push and pull between all of the different creative minds involved in it. His score is very big, very loud, very. It can take over a scene. Just like the colors can take over a scene, or Mishima's personality might even take over a scene. Yeah. And in addition to the idea of action as art, he eventually also equates destruction itself with freedom, which again feeds directly into the end of the film because that's his freedom. Then, right? He destroys himself. I, I wouldn't recommend trying this at home. <laughs> <laughs> You can see why people can be enamored with it or end up following him because it's a very romantic sort of notion, obviously, you know, live hard, die young, that kind of thing. Um, he was very concerned with the decay of the body and all these other things. It clearly, it, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but it's almost like he found being a person icky, you know, it was sort of the body decays and it gets gross and you have to keep it in shape and it gets flabby. And why not just be done with all that? You know, a guy who just didn't seem very comfortable being a person. He wanted to be words, he wanted to be ideas, and he ultimately he wanted to be free by destroying himself. He wanted to be a lot of contradictory things, didn't he? But at the same time, at, by the end, his ideas and his words weren't mattering as much as his body wasn't mattering. So Yeah, that's actually a good point. So if, if the ideas and words aren't being accepted anymore, then what good is the body anyway? Mm -hmm. Anything else you need to toss in? Uh, I no, own the soundtrack on record, and it's awesome. I hate to use the word showy because it makes it sound like a criticism of, of the score, but it was very noticeable. Same with the sets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like. I gotta say, I really like it when someone can turn a weakness into a strength. In this case, sort of a, I assume a lower budget um, into like a stage set where everything's very abstract. Right. It's it was very very well pulled off. Well, it's actually yeah. the first time she did production or on a film. Do you mean the production designer? Yeah, a name I can't pronounce. So I'm not gonna <laughs> don't even don't even try. Don't even try. The 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 sets were like really interesting, really fascinating. I haven't seen the closest analog I can think of is like uh, Eric Romer's Percival, but besides that, I don't really recall seeing sets like those anywhere else. Well, they say the thing about theater sets is that they know it's fake, so don't try to make it look real. Right. Yeah. So so why not here? Especially since, and it jibes so well with the idea that 
this is just happening in his head, sort of, and it's sort of bleeding over mm-hmm. into his mind. Like, it doesn't... When you imagine things, you don't imagine them in that level of detail anyway. You imagine right. the ideas and the events and everything else is sort of background and backdrop. Right. Yeah, and it, it creates some really interesting effects. I, I remember very distinctly um, the scene where the guy loses his stutter and he, there's furniture, but the furniture is sort of at angles and then the walls and everywhere is black. It's very expressive. And then in the second chapter, when the character, I don't know his name, I'm not sure if we learned many names, is laying on the floor, you literally see the little grooves that the uh, booth in the diner is rolling away on. Yeah, that was awesome. Mm-hmm. And they, it, he has tons of overhead shots of just the enclosure, not in the black around it. All right, guys, I will see you. Thank you. Okay, see you. Okay. Wild them in the end, you got hit. You can have flaws, problems, but wild them in the end, and you've got a hit.